Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and um, I am particularly thrilled with the guest that I have for today, um, truly one of the great scholar practitioners of our age, in, in my opinion, and I'm deeply honored and humbled um, that he would take the time to chat with us a little bit today. So I will give Alan his formal introduction, then I'll um, plant some seeds for directions where I'd like to take our conversation. Um, and as you'll see, there will be no shortage of rich material to cover. So Alan Wallace is a prominent voice in the emerging discussion, emerging discussion between contemporary Buddhist thinkers and scientists who question materialist assumptions of their 20th century paradigms. He left his college studies in 1971 and moved to Dharmasala, India, to study Tibetan Buddhism, medicine, and language. He was ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama in over 14 years as a monk, he studied with and translated for several of the generation's greatest lamas. In 1984, he resumed his Western education at Amherst College, where he studied physics and the philosophy of science. He then applied that background to his PhD research at Stanford on the interface between Buddhism and Western science and philosophy. Since 1987, he has been a frequent translator and contributor to meetings between the Dalai Lama and prominent scientists, and he has written and translated more than 40 books. Along with his scholarly work, Alan is regarded as one of the West's preeminent meditation teachers and retreat guides. He is the founder and director of the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies and is the motivating force behind the, develop, be, behind the development of the Center for Contemplative Research in Tuscany, Italy. So, Alan, really, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to chat with us. And um, you may not remember, but we've crossed paths a number of times over the years. I, I uh, ran into you a little bit when you were doing the now famous Shamatha Project at Chambala Mountain mm -hmm. Center. Yes, um, yes, indeed. We also crossed paths several times when you were gracious enough to do some presentations at Naropa University and the like. Um, I remember, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and your work altogether um, has been with me literally for decades. And I have to say that your intellectual rigor, the scope and depth of what you do, um, really places you in one of the categories of uh, intellectual and spiritual heroes in my life. And, and I have to say, one of the things that really touches me the most, Alan, is your absolutely fearless attitude in taking on the high priests of science. Um, <laughs> you, you, have, you have amazing verve and fearless as gusto to go after these um, this new religion, which it really really is. I mean, well, that's what it is, yeah. Isn't it this belief system that people who are blinded by their own brilliance take as irrefutable dogma? And I so delight the conversations you've had with you know high-end theoretical physicists like Sean Carroll and the like. And I continue to um, savor everything you um, do when you uh, kind of cha <clears throat> challenge the Western materialistic paradigm, point out its blind spots. Um, and then just, you know, have the gumption and wherewithal to go after it. So um, there is so much I'd like to discuss with you. With, uh, you know, my guests, I often take these uh, teachings as, as deep as we possibly can. And with you, that means, you know, to the very uh, ground of this groundless thing we call reality. And, and what I think might be a little bit helpful, Ellen, and I'll, I'll start off with a couple of questions for you, is to just situate a little bit the context in which these discussions are taking place. We launched a site some months ago um, called Nightclub, which is just a platform for supporting people in what I am now playfully calling the nocturnal meditations. And what we do is we have six kind of parallel 
tracks that run in this kind of um, pedagogy. We say at the back of the nightclub is what we call night school. And the first track is the science and medicine of sleep. The second track is the daily um, support practices like meditation and the practice of illusory form. Um, and then lucid dreaming in, in a real way is the kind of the center of this mandala. But then it evolves in a kind of Hegelian sense is kind of transcendent include progression that I like to look at the nocturnal practices with um, dream yoga, sleep yoga, luminosity yoga, and then bardo yoga. Um, and so with that said, I, you are absolutely the perfect person to talk to because your work is completely resonant with our central underlying mission statement, you could say, which is the use of dreams as almost an excuse to explore the nature of mind and reality. Um, and as I was reviewing many of your books um, just over these last couple of days, I was uh, struck by how often you use the dream analogy, the dream state, and uh, dream yoga, lucid dreaming as a way, in fact, to explore these finer dimensions of mind. And so before we get into the kind of the deeper, um, you could almost say philosophical, theoretical end of this sort of stuff, I am curious what role has lucid dreaming, dream yoga um, played in your life? Um, because, you know, in addition to the many books where you reference it, you devoted one entire book to this topic. So I'm curious where these nocturnal practices are stationed in your life today. So when I think of dream yoga, I think very classically, that is in accordance with traditional texts. And I, I first received teachings on dream yoga from Gyapshya Zonamachi, but back in 1978 in Switzerland. Um, but, and that was within the context of the six yogas of Naropa. He taught us, gave a transmission on the whole. But it was really in 1990 uh, from the Nyingma Lama, uh, the Venerable Gyaturamachi, Goman Gyaturamachi, yeah. that I first received teachings that really struck me as accessible, inviting. These are for you now. It's not just uh, mental imprints for some later time and later, later lifetime. And so, and since then, I've received further teachings from him in, in the book Natural Liberation on the Six Bardos, mm -hmm. including the Bardo of Dreaming and so forth. So that's kind of that's my, my context, my access to the theory and practice of dream yoga. And then just again as a sidelight, uh, during my gra graduate studies at Stanford from oh, 1989 to 1995, it was during that time that I struck up a friendship and then a professional collaboration with Stephen Leberge. Of course. He was doing his PhD in the psychology department, but it was an it was a independent PhD. Um, and then, so, and I've been interested in dream yoga for a very long time. He learned that I was doing my dissertation on and had some background in shamatha. And he saw the relevance uh, of developing attention skills. And very briefly put, relaxation, a sense of ease of the body and mind, a sense of, of composure, of stillness, of unification, stability, and then finally clarity, vividness, luminosity of awareness, and how the cultivation of these different aspects of attention could be enormously relevant for uh, the practice of lucid dreaming. And so we, over, over the ensuing years, we think it was six times we led 10-day retreats at Stanford and, and Hawaii on different right. occasions. And so that was, you know, that's kind of my background to come to this. Um, but if we go deeper, I was first introduced to the middle way view, the Madhyamaka, back in 1972 when I was a very young student at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. Uh, and it was in the context there was Lamrim. And when we came to the Madhyamaka, the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, all phenomena as arising as dependently related events, 
and in between formal meditative equipoise sessions, viewing all phenomena as dreamlike, I would say my real practice of dream yoga began then. Yes. And so I said classically, I'm going to go back to my basically my first sentence, I think. Classically, when I think of dream yoga, and even for that matter, lucid dreaming, uh, which I integrated in my book, Dreaming, uh, Dreaming Yourself Awake, um, I think of it, I don't think of it simply as nocturnal practice, mm-hmm. nocturnal practice, um, but rather as divided rather evenly, or even I might weight it more heavily to the daytime dream yoga and then the nighttime dream yoga. Yeah, beautiful. And, and, and daytime dream yoga is really, it is Vipassana. It really is Vipassana with the orientation the ambience, the context of moving towards lucidity within the while, while sleeping in the dream state, but also moving towards, as you well know, uh, the possibility of becoming lucid in the deepest, uh, the the dreamless deep sleep, de- dreamless deep sleep state. Mm-hmm. And both of these have enormous relevance. They're covered in natural liberation in this book. Mm-hmm. So I would say this this when we take these both of these into account. Then I mentioned before in our, in our kind of preamble conversation that the, really the central stream of my daily meditative practice uh, for oh, almost 30 years by now has been this current, kind of an un, unbroken current or a continuum of shamatha, vipassana, and then cutting through or texture, which is the quintessential uh, Dzogchen practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in this context then, all of this is from, in my worldview, then the practice of daytime and nighttime dream yoga is couched within the Madhyamaka view, couched within the Dzogchen view. Yes. So this is utterly central. So you ask what role does it play? Well, uh, shamatha is just splashing around in the, in the shallow end of the pool. If you don't go beyond shamatha, if you're just doing shamatha for the sake of shamatha, then as is widely accepted, I think universally in Buddhism, that nobody even reaches the path, let alone achieves, achieves liberation or awakening, without going beyond shamatha into vipassana, motivation into bodhicitta, if you're following the Mahayana path, and then into, in, into really identifying pristine awareness if you're going into the Mahamudra or Dzogchen paths. So we can see then central to this triad of shamatha, vipassana, and let's say textured or identifying pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, vipassana is in the core, and dream yoga is simply a variation on the theme or an expression of the teachings of vipassana. So nighttime dream yoga is simply nighttime vipassana, and daytime dream yoga is daytime vipassana, in my view. Yeah, that's, that's just fantastic. And I could not agree more with you. It's really beautifully and articulately delivered there, Alan. And to me, as you know, His Holiness, even like um, His Holiness Dalai Lama in um, Waking, Dreaming, and sleeping, I believe, is the title. He talks sleeping, about dreaming, oh, sorry, sleeping, sleeping, dreaming, dying. Sleeping, dreaming, sleeping, dreaming, dying. dying. I remember yeah. that conference very, very well. That's uh-huh. right. You were you were one of the translators, and I and that's right. I that's conflate right. that title with uh, Evan Thompson's more recent book, Waking, Dreaming. Right. He, well, Evan Thompson has been part of mine in life for a long time, so he may be nibbled away at that, at that title. Exactly. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, he said as much. But as His Holiness says, and what you're intimating here is that um, really in so many ways dream yoga circumambulates these teachings on emptiness and and um Definitely. Yeah. I, I think there's no doubt about that and and that's where you're um, kind of dovetailing that into the middle way teachings the teachings on Majamaka, and all of them really in the service so to speak of Dzogchen is, is completely resonant with my own approach but for the listeners who may not be as facile as we are 
with terms like shamatha and vipassana. And of course, in, in, often, Alan, when I think of you, I, I think of you in, in the most endearing way as Mr. Shamatha. And I want to... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really some, some people call me Shamatha junkie, but maybe yeah. Mr. Shamatha is a bit nicer. <laughs> Mr. Shamatha is related. And I want to come back to that because not only is this one of your central contributions, I, I think it's absolutely critical as an infrastructure practice for uh, lucid dreaming and dream yoga, um, let alone the, the, the path of awakening altogether. But if you don't mind taking a moment for some of our listeners who may not be as facile with uh, the, the term shamatha and vipassana, and tell us briefly, especially within the framework that you're alluding to here, how you define those terms. And then I definitely want to come back and, and unpack with you the critical importance of uh, stabilizing the mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, I, I would say I don't have a view. I, well, here's my Alan Wallace's special spin on shamatha and vipassana, and my interpretation of vipassana is such and such. I don't have one. But I do for, I think I've been teaching now for 42 years, really a central guiding light for me in teaching um, is give authentic teachings. If you're teaching Buddhism, teach authentic Buddhism. Mm-hmm. If you want to teach your own views, I'm about to teach the Alan Wallace view, and it'll be authentic because whatever I say is going <laughs> to is what I believe, you know. But no, I'm not here to teach Alan Wallace's view. Uh, so when I'm teaching, I often teach Theravada. I teach mindfulness of breathing, four applications of mindfulness, four immeasurables. And then I'm really following very closely to the Pali Canon, to the Buddha Gosa, the classic teachings. And so likewise, when we come to Shamadeva Vipassana, uh, this is these two terms are already defined, and they're really quite in terms of classic authentic Buddhism, whether Theravada, Indian, Tibetan, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, how do you say, consensus mm-hmm. about the meaning of these terms. And that doesn't mean that people in the 20, 21st century can't come up with their own definitions, but they are coming up with a little kind of feather on the top of the table, and the table's been around for 2,500 years. Right. I think a, a gust of wind is probably going to blow away that, that, that feather, uh, you know, with, with a matter of months or years. So, shamatha. Here's classic teachings on shamatha, Theravada, Indian, Tibetan Buddhism, it's very straightforward. The term itself in Sanskrit means serenity, quiescence, tranquility. Uh, has uh, my translation of it would be, um, peace, she is peaceful, and may is stillness, a peaceful stillness of mind. Calm abiding is fine. This is Jeffrey Hopkins 45 years ago or so. It's certainly, certainly not incorrect. I, I can't remember if making a mistake, frankly. So shamatha, that's just the meaning of the term then. But what the whole genre of shamatha meditations is about, and in the Pali Canon, the Buddha taught 40 different methods, and then we find further in the Mahaya, in Mahayana tradition, Vajrayana, further methods in Mahamudra and Dzogchen, what they all have in common is the shamatha is an array of practices designed to develop attention skills. Mm-hmm. It's really straightforward. Now, attention skills then are cultivated by developing single-pointed attention, that's samadhi, by developing mindfulness, which is the Buddhist me- meaning is really very different from the modern meaning of moment-to-moment uh, judgmental awareness. Mm-hmm. Very useful, but not a Buddhist definition, never has been, and it doesn't become Buddhist just by saying so. The Buddhist definition throughout all of Buddhism, all through all the various, various Buddhist cultures throughout Asia, is mindfulness, sati smriti, has a primary connotation of bearing in mind. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind something with which you're familiar, with which you're acquainted, and bearing it in mind without forgetfulness or distraction. Now, this is a very non-controversial definition, and although there are subtle nuances here and there, in all these languages, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Mongolian, Chinese, Japanese, in all of these terms, all of these languages that have absorbed Buddhism deeply and for centuries, 
The term that is translated from the sati always has a primary connotation of to bear in mind or to, re re or to recall. So that's a crucial feature that is if you're focusing on something, whether it's focusing on your breath or whether you're, you've just slipped into lucidity in a dream. Mm -hmm. And so now you have lab time in the optimal lab, laboratory, for exploring the nature of the mind because the whole laboratory is made of the mind. That's right. So whatever you look at, it's a configuration and expression of mind. And of course, there's nothing whatsoever that is physical in a dreamscape. Not, new, not you, not your awareness, not appearances, nothing. And so once you've entered into lucidity, you've recognized the dream as a dream, then I'll show how this relates to shamatha. So maybe I'm, I'm just going to wind around a little bit if you don't no, mind. Oh, cool. Go for it. And, that, and this is, goes back to my initial professional collaboration with Stephen LaBerge. Many, many people, when they have their first lucid dream, they get so excited, they wake themselves up. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a matter of seconds. And right. wow, I'm lucid. Oh, whoops, I'm no longer, now I'm just awake. <laughs> and so the first thing is, chill, dude. You know, relax. So you come lucid, take it easy peasy. You know, slip into it, relax, be at ease. But don't jolt yourself out of it because you get so excited. So the first in this triad, this, the, this sequential triad, relaxation, stability, vividness, mm -hmm. is directly relevant to, to developing the skills, not, to be, not only to become lucid, but once you're lucid, to not blow it just by getting excited uh, you know, or, or agitated. Yeah. And then secondly, uh, when, once you're in this dream, lucid dreaming laboratory, then, like, like an astronomer that gets to go to a world-class observatory, you want to have as much time there as possible. You know, this is solid gold. So once you become lucid in a dream, it just makes sense. You are now in a very precious opportunity to make some very important insights, transformative, revealing of the nature of consciousness and so forth. So wouldn't you like to have greater lab time? And this means maintain two things that are independent variables. And that is one, maintain the continuity of the dream itself so it doesn't just fade out or you don't yep. wake up. And then secondly, as an independent variable, maintain the lucidity. Because you can continue dreaming and slip back into a non-lucid dream. You can also, if you're maintaining lucidity, you can lose the dream, but you can go right, right into lucid, dreamless sleep. So the second quality then would be the ability to maintain that continuity, and that is exactly mindfulness. It's bearing in mind what you wish to attend to without forgetfulness, without distraction. And then thirdly, again, relating shamatha to <coughs> lucid dreaming and dream yoga, the higher the definition, the higher clarity, the vividness, the higher resolution, and so forth of your dream, of course, it's just, it's better. It's just yeah. a more vivid experience altogether. And that brings in the third quality that is cultivated explicitly in shamatha, and that is the vividness, the brightness, the luminosity, high resolution, sharp focus of your awareness. And so shamatha in short, that was kind of an elaboration, touch, touch, touching on different points. But shamatha in short is developing one's attention skills together with mindfulness, the ability to bear in mind what you're attending to, but also in order to, to sustain these, to, to achieve these, the samadhi, the single-pointedness of attention, and the mindfulness, you need the samprajanya, and it's translated in various ways and I'm not really satisfied with other translations. Mm -hmm. uh, I translate some prajanya or shesha in Tibetan as introspection. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason for that, I'm sticking to that, and not clear comprehension or vigilance or alertness or full awareness. I think they all miss the mark. They're not wrong, but they really miss the mark. And the, and the reason for that is this introspection is always, by definition, reflexive. Mm -hmm. 
I can practice mindfulness on your voice, but I can, I can practice samprajanya on my body, my voice, my mind, but not on any, anybody else's body or the external environment and so forth. So we're cultivating mindfulness and introspection, expecting intro reflexively, not just on the mind, but the body, on occasion, the body, on one's speech, when one is speaking, and then, of course, when you're practicing shamatha, is overwhelmingly reflectively attending to the flow of mindfulness so you can recognize as quickly as possible when the flow of attention has veered off into either of the two extremes, and that's laxity, exactly. loss of clarity and dullness, and excitation or agitation, and that's where you lose it because you become distracted. So this is, if we consider that Vipassana, especially Vipassana on the very nature of the mind, and mm -hmm. Dream Yoga is an expression of Vipassana on the nature of mind, that if we consider the passion and nature of mind is a contemplative science, and the, the object of the science is the space of the mind, the space of awareness, and whatever mental events take place within that space, including dreams, then the passion is like astronomy, and shamatha is like a telescope. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. That's really it. And so, it, and the telescope, and I, I like the, the largeness of it, rather than thinking of a contemplative laboratory, a contemplative observatory, because the space of the mind is not microscopic. It's not inside the head, despite all the ridiculous propaganda about thoughts and images and memories and so forth, all in, occurring inside neurons and synapses. Right. One, of the, one of the biggest superstitions of modern era, unfortunately promoted by the scientific community, which should be getting rid of superstitions and not adding to them. That's right. And there's so much... Um, but, uh, nonsense, just use a nice word, nonsense, <laughs> coming out of people's materialistic beliefs that is actually not only not scientific, it's anti-scientific. Yeah. Because it obscures the actual evidence. And the evidence is that obviously mental events, dreams, consciousness are all non-physical. That should be as plain as day because none of them can be measured physically. And we, when you observe them, they don't display any physical characteristics whatsoever. Shouldn't that be QED right there and stop the conversation? Aren't yeah. we finished here? And the answer is no. Many people cling more tenaciously yeah. to their beliefs, whether they're religious beliefs or their materialistic beliefs or their political beliefs. And I'm not going to go there. Yeah. People cling to their idols, their, you know, their heroes, their beliefs. And that just throws reason and empirical evidence out the window. And that's what's happened with materialism and yeah. how it's so suffocating to the scientific study of the mind. Shamatha yeah. then is technology, and it overcomes some of the deepest qualms that were very legitimate qualms during the opening decades of the modern scientific study of the mind. This is from about 1875 to 1910, where the giants in the fields, such as Edward Titchener, William James, Wilhelm Wundt, were all promoting a very scientific approach to the study of the mind, in which they emphasize, above all, observe it for heaven's sakes. This has been the success route for all other branches of science. Whatever you, want to whatever you like to understand in the natural world, observe it with as much sophistication and rigor and replicability as you possibly can. And so that's what William James, Wilhelm von Tichner were all trying to do. Tichner was really quite outstanding. Uh, but what they didn't have, and William James didn't know about, uh, in fact, none of them did, because they were very Eurocentric, living in this Victorian, Victorian era by and large, is they, had, they didn't have any sophisticated means for developing attention skills. In mm -hmm. fact, William James concluded, based on the evidence he had at his fingertips, that attention couldn't be trained. That it's just a fixed quality of each, each individual. Uh, well, he never went to India, neither I don't think Tischner did or Wilhelm Wundt either. 
They were very Eurocentric. They considered if the Europeans Eurocentric civilization doesn't know something, nobody does. And so meanwhile, you know, just, you know, 8,000 miles away, India, Tibet, Southeast Asia, China, Japan, Mongolia, etc. They've been, <laughs> they've been developing these in, incredible technologies of samadhi, of shamatha for literally millennia. But we, in our, in our Eurocentric pomposity, considered, you know, have, have assumed almost to the present day that if we haven't achieved it, nobody has. So shamatha is the technology, it's the missing link to make introspection viable as a rigorously scientific way of attending to and beginning to investigate the nature of the mind. It's the telescope without which all you have is folk astronomy, stargazing, and without shamatha, you've got folk psychology, you've got folk <laughs> meditation, you've got folk contemplative inquiry. And vipassana without shamatha is like, again, it's like being an astronomer with no telescope. Yeah. So that's shamatha. And then, so that's a contemplative technology. And then vipassana, contrary to the very valuable but very misleading watering down of vipassana, where it's become equated with mindfulness, which has never been true. Right. Uh, and it's often equated with mindfulness. And then mindfulness is equated with bare attention, which has never been true. And then people sitting and just practicing bare attention think that they're practicing vipassana. Well, if they, if, well, this is like a VW with a Rolls Royce insignia on the hood, <laughs> you know? And look, look, look at my Rolls Royce, but just look, just look at the insignia. Don't look at the car. It's, right. It does say Rolls Royce. Or, you know, one of the $10 watches they used to sell in Hong Kong. It's a Rolex. It's exactly. a great deal. A $10 Rolex. Got to be a Rolex because it says so. And this must be Vipassana because everybody says it's Vipassana. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's deal with this. Let's get back to the real world. Uh, I've read Theravada, authoritative Theravada literature, and it's in completely in, in accordance with the classical Mahayana literature for all of Asia. And that is the Pashana differs from Shamada in that it entails an element of inquiry. That's right. If it's just being, just being here now, just being barely attentive to whatever's coming up, it's not even Shamada, and it's not Vipassana. And so Vipassana is contemplative science. And it can be passionate investigating impermanence and the nature of dukkha, the unsatisfying nature of existence when our, our lives are permeated by attachment and craving. It is, is investigating what is really I or mine. Um, you know, in the first journey we'll have done in Theravada, is there anything that is really I, really mine? Uh, and so the philosophers think about these kinds of things. And philosophers were thinking about these kinds of things at the time of the Buddha and before the Buddha. There was such a pluralism of philosophical inquiry from atheism, materialism, polytheism, monotheism, personal God, impersonal God. It was, a, you know, it was far more advanced than Greece at that time in the richness of philosophical inquiry. But then, but then parallel with this, the many schools of philosophical or spiritual worldviews at the time of the Buddha. But what was unique about India that I think you do not find at that time in China, Greece, the Mayans, or anywhere else, was by the time the Buddha came along, they already had an extremely mature discipline of samadhi. According to the Buddhist view, they'd already explored all of the, the dhyanas within the form realm, all of the samapatis within the formless realm, and in so doing, had made a tremendous number of discoveries uh, prior to the Buddha. And, and Buddhism embraced that, but again, the critical feature here that was unique, unprecedented, in the cultural, you know, the contemplative history of India was we had philosophers on the one hand, and we had samadhi masters on the other. And what the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment that was unprecedented 
was that fusion of shamatha with, shamatha with vipassana. Exactly. Yeah. And he's using a very refined, he's got his telescope down, a very refined first jhana. First jhana is good enough. Fourth mm-hmm. jhana, all the better. But then you don't have your intellectual faculties of vichara and vitarka, of close investigation, of course investigation. And so the first jhana was really perfect because you have that magnificent equipoise the balance, the clarity, the sustainability of attention, which you can you can sustain effortlessly for hours on end. But then on that basis, and this was the tremendous innovation, maybe the most important one of the historical Buddha, on that basis, now don't just start philosophizing and thinking about this and that, but you use this like Galileo looking at the little dots around Jupiter and asking a question. Are those background stars or might they be, contrary to every belief in Europe at that time, might they be actually moons around Jupiter? He tracked them for two weeks, and he found those background stars moved along with Jupiter, which means they're not background stars. And that violated beliefs ever since Aristotle that all celestial bodies rotate around the Earth. So that is, astronomy is the vipassana of celestial phenomena. Beautiful. And vipassana is contemplative science regarding everything. Elementary particles, galaxies, space, time, matter, ideas, dreams, mountains, tectonic plates, you name it, and of course body and mind, to really try to identify phenomenologically. So it's two levels here. Phenomenologically, are these impermanent, permanent? Are they genuine sources of well-being? Or are they not? Are they I or mine? Or are they not? And then we go into the deeper waters that brings us to dream yoga. And then we ask, we, make, we start with the observation. And that is, as we look around us, whether in the waking state or the dream, and it certainly appears to us as if all those appearances are out there. Mm-hmm. I'm, look, I'm looking at a cabinet right in front of me, and it's brown, it's wood, it's old wood. And I can, I can almost see its firmness. It's very woody. You know, it's just wood stained. And I'm sure if I walk over it and I put my, put my finger onto it, I know exactly what it's going to feel like because it's over there. It's over there, and I'm pointing my finger at it. It's over there, and it absolutely appears to be really existing over there independently of my looking at it or thinking about it. It's just a big, great, big, chunky wooden cabinet over there. And that's true, equally true in a dream, where only retrospectively when we wake up, we say, oh, that was misleading. There are no, there are no wooden cabinets in a dream because there's no wood because there's no molecules. And so Vipassana is really trying to understand in a kind of a scientific way the nature of phenomenological reality. In a, in, in a way analogous to what scientists do. They observe carefully, they ask questions, they apply analysis, they draw conclusions, they create hypotheses, test the hypotheses. In the passion, at the best, that's exactly what you're doing. But science is overwhelmingly, especially since behaviorism took over the mind sciences, and then neuroscience took over. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.